This is Africa Digest. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg on the frequencies 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I'm your host, Khobediwa Namani. With me is Anne Musa and Figile Lingwati. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. Our top stories this hour, truck drivers concerned about their safety in the border between Cameroon and the Central African Republic and a taxi strike hit South Africa's Houting province hard. In our economics news, Libyan Prime Minister orders the lifting at the blockade on the main oil terminals in the east of the country and in sports. Zimbabwe national team coach delighted with uh, how they performed in the African Nations Championship. All these and more coming up, but first it's time for the news. Good afternoon. The Egyptian military have raided suspected militants' hideouts in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, killing at least 20 and wounding 25. Officials say the raid, which led to the arrest of 16 suspected militants, was among the biggest in an ongoing offensive against militants waging an insurgency in the strategic area bordering the Gaza Strip and Israel. The raids are part of an escalation of the fighting in the Sinai. On Friday, army aircraft pounded suspected militant positions killing 13 people. Nigeria's former Vice President Atiku Abubakar has defected to Nigeria's main opposition party, the defection adding a heavyweight name to a group that poses an increasing threat to the ruling People's Democratic Party, the PDP, in elections next year. Abubakar, a founding member of PDP and Vice President between 1999 and 2007, joins five state governors and dozens of lawmakers who have recently signed up with the All-Progressive Congress, which have used its increasing weight to threaten to block this year's budget in Parliament. An appeal for $2 billion is being made by the United Nations to break what it's been described as a crisis cycle in the Sahel region. According to the UN, the humanitarian situation in the eight countries of the African region is deteriorating. It says more than 20 million people are struggling to feed themselves and that they require support before May when their needs are greatest. The UN's regional humanitarian coordinator for the Sahel, Robert Piper, says a new three-year strategic plan has long-term goals. It's a plan where the humanitarian community has recognized that we are in this race against time. We need to equip households in this region not only to anticipate and then manage the next crisis, but they need to be sadly ready for the one that follows after that, that the cycle of crises are getting closer and closer together and these events are getting also more intense. The Foundation for Human Rights, Freedom and Humanitarian Relief says human rights violations in Syria continues unabated. The Foundation's Nalan Dal says they have witnessed a number of Syrian women and children in distress. Many women wept as they watched a video showing scores of injured Syrian women and children. Dal says humanitarians can't choose sides. My heart bleeds every day when I see the special ladies and children suffering because you are, you are not there to judge who is good guy or who is bad, bad guy. Your responsibility as humanitarian aid worker to see who is suffering and so that you can heal their pain and sorrow. 
All the details of late former South African President Nelson Mandela's will will be made public to ensure transparency and efficiency. That is, according to Constitutional Court Deputy President Dikhang Musineke, Musineke, Judge President Timba Sangoni and Mandela's longtime friend Advocate George Bezos have been appointed as executors of the estate. The documents will be made public online and will also be available at public court documents. Musineke says the executors have full powers but adds that Mandela decided on three family members they can consult, consult should the need arise. Former President Mandela expressed his earnest wish in his will that his executors and administrators should, in respect of any important decisions and on the needs of his family from time to time, consult, but no more than a wish and without fettering the executors and administrators in the performance of their functions and the exercise of their powers. With Mrs. Grasha Michelle, Ms. Makaziwe, Mandela Amua and Miss Mandela Zamini. And that's the news headlines at 5.30 Central African Time. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. And Musa will be back with your headlines at 17.30 Central African time. After our stories for the day, 300 trucks, some transporting humanitarian needs to the troubled Central African Republic, are grounded at the border town of Garua Bulai in Cameroon. The truck drivers say they're being targeted by both anti-Balaka and Seleka rebels. When Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaga visited Garua Bulai over the weekend, 500 stranded drivers were burying one of them killed in Central Africa. They say five of them have so far lost their lives. At the same time, humanitarian needs are said to be increasing in the CAR. Six hundred frustrated drivers and their assistants were expressing anger when Channel Africa got to Garwa Bulai on Cameroon's border with CAR. <laughs> One of the drivers, 48-year-old Zamba Zru from CAR, told Channel Africa that he had been living under his truck for 40 days and 40 nights. Par exemple, moi qui parle, je suis centrafricain. Vous croyez que pendant que je viens, je dors en bas de camion. He asks if someone should think that he is happy staying under a truck in a foreign land. He asks that he is a Central African and would love to go back and meet his people. The drivers transporting goods and humanitarian assistance from Cameroon's seaport to the troubled country say they have been victims of persistent attacks from both Seleka and Antibalakas all of them rivals in CAR. Tukul, who is an official of the trade union of drivers, told Channel Africa 
that three of the drivers who attempted to carry supplies to CAR were killed. Un enterré là. Les deux autres, nous avons réussi à ramener le corps, chacun dans son village. Il y a également... He says one was buried at Garwabulai and they took the corpses of two others to their villages. There are also drivers who are given corporal punishment and some have matched cuts all over their bodies, he adds, and concludes that at the time he speaks, four others are in a critical situation in Central Africa. And he says he must tell the world that it is an eyesore. Tuku says the lives of 20 drivers who were convinced by the United Nations humanitarian agencies to bring in medication were saved in CAR thanks to the intervention of the African Union-led International Mission for the Support of Central African Republic, MISCA. He says Mr. Forces, who arrived at the scene of the incident, told them that if they came just five minutes late, all the people that are around them would have been killed. 28-year-old driver Dan Dan had wounds on his body. His vehicle had been sprayed with bullets. He says they were taken unaware by the soldiers who attacked them and started shooting. He adds that his vehicle has holes all over and that bullets penetrated everywhere. All of the drivers like Amadou Kani are not ready to transport the supplies to CAR. They are asking the new government in the troubled country to assure them of their safety. He says even when they have the military escorting them, there are still problems, especially for those of them who are Muslims. He asks what their fate will be if they get back to Bangui. The situation of the drivers is worsening as the days go by. They say if nothing is done, they may start feeding on the food they are transporting to CAR. Abdul Karim was already preparing some of the rice he was transporting. We do not even have what to eat, he says. This rice I'm preparing cannot help us. We do not have money, even for our breakfast. Landlocked CAR depends on the Douala seaport in Cameroon for 95% of its supplies. If the current situation persists, then an airlift may be the only near alternative. But the United Nations has indicated that it is very expensive. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundi. Uganda's mining industry could do more harm than good for indigenous people unless the government makes reforms and mining companies start respecting rights. This according to Human Rights Watch in a report released this morning in the remote northeastern Karamoja region to bring economic development. But... uh, has not implemented reforms to respect the rights of indigenous people to determine how their lands are used. Jessica Evans is the senior researcher and advocate working on international financial institutions at Human Rights Watch, and she explains how the organization conducted their research. Several Human Rights Watch researchers visited the Cambodia region for a number of weeks in June and July in 2013 to carry out the field research for the report. 
In addition, since then, Human Rights Watch has gathered further information through uh, writing and through interviews in Kampala, as well as telephone interviews. And follow-up research has, is what's reviewed to bring together this report. And then the report has a lot of emphasis on respecting the rights of the indigenous people in that area. What does human rights mean when they see mining companies must start respecting the rights of the indigenous people? In this report, what we've really focused on is the right of indigenous peoples to have a say in how the development of their region and their lands takes place and also to share in the benefits of whatever development takes place on their lands. At international human rights law, what is required is for companies and for the government to consult with Indigenous communities to secure their free, prior and informed consent for any activities which are going to take place on their lands. Unfortunately, what we found in Karamoja is that this definitely didn't take place. We saw exploration and active mining throughout the region and unfortunately the indigenous peoples had not been given the opportunity to consent to those activities. But if the Ugandan government and these private companies, that is East African Mining, you've mentioned Yan Mangal and DAO Uganda, had consulted with Karamoja's indigenous people about the development of their lands, do you think they would have welcomed this mining if it is of benefit to them? That's actually a a very interesting point because all of the people that Human Rights Watch interviewed in Karamoja didn't oppose mining out of principle. In fact, many of them said that they would have welcomed the companies if they could have taken part in deciding how the projects would go forward and if they knew how and when they would benefit. But unfortunately, the companies missed the opportunity to really make this a partnership with the indigenous peoples in Karamoja. But this mining and private investment in mining in the Karamoja region, has it not brought economic development so far? Definitely not so far. As you know, this is one of the poorest regions in, it is the poorest region in Uganda. Actually, more than 80% of people live on less than $1 a day, and it has the highest rates of childhood malnutrition in Uganda at about 45%. So this is an extremely poor region, and unfortunately to date, they haven't seen any of the potential economic benefits of mining. While there have been some employment opportunities, it has been very short-lived, particularly in, in the Kubong area. In Moroto, there has been very little employment opportunity at all. Under Ugandan law, on a positive note, the government provides 3% of the royalties to the community landowners. But to date, even though there's only one of from the three companies that we looked at, only one company is actively mining at the moment. And the communities in that area have not yet received any of those royalties. One of the challenges here is that although the Ugandan law does recognize communal ownership of land, there hasn't been any registration of communal ownership in in Karamoja. And this means that even the requirement that these communities will benefit from the royalties, they're not sure that they will because there isn't that security of recognition of their actual ownership of the land. And how long has there been mining in Karamoja and what is being mined? There's been mining in Karamoja for decades in one way or another, but actually between 2003 and 2011, there has been more than a 700% increase in uh, licensing of companies to carry out exploration and mining operations in Karamoja. The companies that we uh, looked into are 
exploring for or mining for gold and for marble. And it is thought that this is a resource-rich area, uh, particularly in gold and marble. But you know, there's another thing that intrigues me here, where in the report Human Rights Watch mentions that the Ugandan People's Defence Forces are often to be found at exploration and mining operations at Karamoja. Why would the government want to deploy armed forces there? The armed forces have played a significant role in Karamoja for many years now. And this started with a disarmament operation which involved a lot of abuses which Human Rights Watch has documented previously. The disarmament operation included stop and search operations during which, unfortunately, there were unlawful killings and other kinds of abuses. So that's the history of the Ugandan People's Defence Forces within the Karamoja region. Now they are providing security for a number of the companies in the region. And one of the problems with this is that it is very difficult for people who, where there has been a history of these violent abuses, to then have the security forces in their area and still be able to have free kind of conversations with the company employees that are there. The security forces are providing security for the companies that are present within Karamoja. We have not documented any abuses, but the problem is that their mere presence, uh, many of the people in Karamoja told us they found intimidating. That was Jessica Evans, senior researcher and advocate working on international financial institutions at Human Rights Watch, on the line from Cape Town speaking to Channel Africa's Jose Dingage. On to health matters, the Joint United Nations Programme on HIV and AIDS UNAIDS has joined forces with international recording artists, actress and financial or other fashion designer Rihanna to increase knowledge and awareness about HIV and AIDS among young people. This is a part of the program's efforts to expand its Treatment 2015 initiative. The initiative has gained financial support from the heart and soul of MAC Cosmetics, the MAC AIDS Fund, which injected two million US dollars grant into the project. The MAC AIDS Fund was established in 1994 to support men, women, and children affected by HIV and AIDS globally. Michelle Sidibe, executive director of UNAIDS, elaborates further on the reasons behind this collaboration. You know, we wanted to really connect the dots. Uh, If you look at what is happening today in the world, after 30 years fighting this epidemic, we have only 24% of young girls between 10 to 24 who are knowing the mode of transmission of this epidemic. And 50% of the young people who are HIV positive today don't know their status. So we were thinking that we were failing with our traditional model of communication. It was not uh, reaching people, young people where they are. So we were thinking connecting dots by using, of course, uh, MacAid's fund, but also using Rihanna uh, power to really reach young people with social media. A lot has been said, Mr. Sidibe, about how stopping HIV-AIDS requires comprehensive strategies that focus on young people. Is this perhaps part of the reason why you're now including Rihanna in this program, in order to change the way you communicate with young people? If you look at today, if I am producing with the Minister of Health of South Africa, my brother Aaron, 
a very nice booklet talking about the mode of transmission, young people, trying to reach even the school children with those booklets. How many of those children will be very interesting? But if you check what Rihanna is doing today with just a Twitter, Rihanna has 34 million followers, almost 4 billion views on YouTube. So one sentence from Rihanna will be certainly reaching millions of young people when we will be struggling with few young people through school setting, through traditional communication approach. That's why I think it will change completely the way we talk to them, the way we really bring them. And also what is important from my point of view is that we are not only trying to use this approach for saving a life of young people, but it is the way also of investing in healthier future of our generation to come. And that is very important. Now, the initiative aims to reach about 15 million adults and young people with HIV treatment by 2015. How realistic is this goal? No, I think 10 years back, people were telling us that we could not even give treatment to poor people in Africa. And we remember few privileged people were having access to treatment. With a civil society movement, we have been able to mobilize this energy at community level. We broke the conspiracy of silence. We managed to reduce the price of treatment. And today we have 10 million people on treatment. So I think reaching 15 million by 2015, it's possible. South Africa moved from only 300, 400,000 people on treatment to 2.3 million people on treatment during the last four years. So this is possible. It's just a matter of reorganizing our programmatic approach and making sure that we go to community level and we continue to work with civil society groups so we can be reaching people where they are. You spoke about the tremendous progress that has been made in treating HIV AIDS over the years. What have been the main setbacks in your view? For me, the major challenge for us will be the commodity security. How we'll make sure that people will have access to low-cost medicine. And that's why I was always calling for a continental vision to make sure that Africa could produce their own medicine. We are seeing some progress in different places. South Africa is producing now a medicine at $80 per person per year. We need to collectively organize ourselves to make sure that we support this vision of producing our local medicine if we want to reach those millions of people who are without treatment today in a sustainable manner. And that's why the fight to make sure that we have our local production is something very important. UNAIDS is one of the many organizations that continue to mobilize the international community to find a vaccine or a cure for HIV AIDS. How close is the world to being rid of this disease? You know, I am very optimistic person, so that uh, I am convinced that uh, it will take some time, but uh, I'm sure we will be able to have a functional cure. That will happen certainly in the future, I don't know, five years, ten years, but I am convinced that we will have a functional cure. A few years back, uh, we were giving 18 pills 
every day to the patient. Today we are giving uh, one pill a day, and soon we will have one pill a month to treat uh, our people with uh, HIV AIDS. So I'm seeing a, a tremendous change in fighting uh, this epidemic, and particularly the effort of innovation and science is just amazing. And that was Michelle Sidibe. He's the executive director of the Joint United Nations Program on HIV and AIDS UNH, speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The 20th annual Investing in Africa Mining Indaba got underway at the Cape Town International Convention Center in South Africa today. The three-day Indaba is the world's largest mining investment convention and brings together captains of industry from all over Africa, Australia, North America and the United Kingdom to focus on creating more investor interest in the sector of the African continent. To uh, tell us more, here's Group Marketing Director of the Indaba, Maria Palombini. 2014, besides this as being our 20 years, it celebrates not only the mining in Daba and being in South Africa for 20 years, but also celebrates the evolution of African mining um, on the continent. So we look at how far it's come and how so many other countries, along with South Africa, have evolved and been able to use the opportunities that they've done for mining to expand into other industries as well. So if you look at infrastructure development and all the other supportive secondary industries that make mining happen, they have grown as well. So I think this celebrates those those achievements, but then we also look at what we want to do beginning looking forward. And so that's what this year's really theme about. What are you hoping that will be discussed at this year's Indaba? We're going to see a lot more about the opportunities that and the and with the recovering global economy in Europe, in China, and the United States, that the demand is going to grow for those raw materials again. And so Africa is primed to be ready to answer that demand, but also Africa continues to be globally, for mining, a very attractive investment opportunity. And so those are some of the main points we're going to hear from the many corporate presentations that are going to be coming out from the mining companies. But at the end of the day, the goal of the mining in Daba is to make sure that all the delegates here are fully aware of all the opportunities that the continent has to offer. And that is the number one goal that we try to achieve. That was Group Marketing Director of the Group Market or rather of the Indaba, Maria Palombini speaking to Spumelele Zondi. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says investment between African countries must become the new economic paradigm for the continent. He was speaking in Johannesburg at an economic conference organized by the New York-based financial software data and media company Bloomberg LP. Zuma says the continent cannot expect external partners to appreciate the value of Africa if Africans don't do so themselves. President Zuma says they're therefore working as the African Union to achieve greater levels of intra-Africa investment. The forum brought together bankers, chief executive officers of companies and investors to discuss, among others, Africa's economic outlook and investment opportunities. 
President Jacob Zuma told the gathering that it is his government's belief that Africa's integration and intra-African trade cannot be realized without concerted effort to invest in Africa's infrastructure and manufacturing sectors. He says intra-Africa investment should define the new African paradigm. Let me emphasize that we cannot expect external partners to appreciate the value of Africa if we as Africans do not. We are therefore working as the African Union to achieve greater levels of intra-African investments. It is mine and my government's belief that Africa's integration and intra-Africa trade cannot be realized without concerted efforts to invest in Africa's infrastructure and manufacturing sector. President Zuma says there's a need for African countries to strengthen partnerships and work together to realize the vision of an integrated Africa underpinned by greater levels of intra-Africa trade and investment. He says the lack of access through to infrastructure that enable access to trade between African countries remains a key challenge facing the continent. President Zuma says heads of state and government who attended the recently ended African Union summit in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa recommitted themselves to continuing building cross-border infrastructure to unlock growth and development on the continent. We have made considerable progress in the negotiations which aim to integrate 26 countries of Eastern and Southern Africa. This involves a population of nearly 600 million people and a combined GDP of 1 trillion US dollars. The free trade area will form the basis of an Africa-wide free trade agreement which could create a single market of 2.6 trillion U.S. dollars. Founder of Bloomberg LP and former mayor of the city of New York, Michael Bloomberg says six of the ten fastest-growing economies in the world are in Africa. Bloomberg has invested significantly in South Africa and the rest of the continent with offices, terminals and news outlets. He says Africa's gross domestic product is growing faster than anywhere else outside Asia. By some projections, total GDP of African nations is going to double in each of the next four decades. And that would mean by 2050, African economy would be bigger than the combined economies of Europe and America today. Milizuna is a deputy governor of the Central Bank of Ghana. He says infrastructure remains a bottleneck to Africa's development. Infrastructure has been seen as the bottleneck to our quest for development. And I was happy when the African Development Bank identified this and set up a company, a whole fund, to raise um, more funds from development partners in African countries so that they can initiate the process of infrastructure development. South African Minister of Finance Praveen Gordon, Reserve Bank Governor Gil Marcus, and the Vice President of the Nigerian Stock Exchange, Agboye Aig Imukwende, were among the prominent speakers that participated in the discussions. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. It's 17.30 Central African time. Here's Anne with your headlines. Good afternoon. The Egyptian military have raided suspected militants' hideouts in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, killing at least 20 and wounding 25. 
Nigeria's former Vice President Atiku Abubakar has defected to Nigeria's main opposition party and an appeal for $2 billion is being made by the, UN, by the United Nations to break what's been described as a crisis cycle in the Sahel region. And those are the stories making headlines. With the South African National Taxi Alliance's decision to embark on a nationwide strike today, thousands of taxi commuters have been left stranded across the country's Houding province. The National Taxi Alliance has called a nationwide strike to voice its disappointment at the government's failure to ensure operating licenses and taxis being billed, even though they're supposed to be exempted from e-tolls, a user pay system that was recently introduced for the usage of highways in the Houding province. Session Naidu reports. Scores of taxi commuters were left stranded today at various taxi ranks across Gauteng as a result of the nationwide strike by taxi operators. Commuters had to wait in long queues in miserable weather conditions for taxis as only a few were operating. Some of the angry commuters at the Nurt taxi rank had this to say. I'm coming from here, but I'm going to Kramavillet work. Yeah, it's affected now. There's no taxis. I'm waiting and waiting. I'm not going to work because the taxi are not working. They're on strike. So I'm stranded here. I'm going to wait. I don't know until when. Meanwhile, at the Chris Hani Baraguana taxi rank in Soweto, the situation was dire, with not even a single taxi being spotted. A schoolgirl that the SABC spoke to says she only found out about the strike this morning, and now she can't go to school. I can't find taxi. They say that they are in strike. I've come away today in the morning. I don't have a way. It's better go back home. The National Taxi Alliance says its grievances include government's failure to issue operating permits. The alliance says it's also being billed for e-tolls despite Sandral's exemption of public transport. The alliance's Theo Malele says they've written to the transport department but haven't received any reply. A number of uh, issues that uh, these very taxis you know, 80% uh, in Gauteng do not have permits, and of the 80%, half of them, uh, the permits are lying with the permit board. There is also the issue of uh, subsidization, which we really feel that uh, the government are contravening the very constitution of our country by subsidizing buses and rail and uh, treating, uh, you know, taxis as second-class citizens. Traffic has also been severely disrupted due to taxis which are blocking several roads in Johannesburg. Metro Police's Edna Mamonyane says traffic authorities have been dispersed to all the affected areas. With taxi drivers and associations having been urged to refrain from unruly behavior and intimidation during the strike, there was no sign of violence or intimidation at any of the ranks. That report by Sasha Naidu. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
The Nigerian Union of Journalists, NUJ, has condemned the murder of a local journalist, Toyin Ayinla. Ayinla, deputy editor of Saturday Newswatch newspaper, was shot and wounded by armed robbers in Ikorodu area of Lagos last Friday. NUJ says this murder is another reminder of the vulnerability of media professionals in the country. The organization says the Nigerian system has failed to protect its citizens. Unions, Federation of African Journalists and the International Federation of Journalists have raised concerns over the security of journalists in Nigeria. More from Shaibu Lehman, Secretary General of the Nigerian Union of Journalists. Tony was shot on a Friday night after he closed from work. He went and withdrew money from the ATM to go home. On his way, he was blocked by two gunmen in a car. They snatched the money from him and shot him severely in the abdomen. He was subsequently taken to hospital, but a day later, he gave up. That gave an indication that it was an armed robbery case. I wouldn't conclude early on that till the police are able to conclusively put that case as a case of armed robbery. Could one really say this was an assassination or could it just be an armed robbery? Well, the police have commenced investigation into that and uh, we are not certain. But our fears are that police have never concluded any investigation relating to the killing of journalists over the years. So I'm afraid even this investigation may be swept under the carpet. This is not the first time this has happened where we found that journalists have been killed or have been assassinated. The Federation of African Journalists has raised also concerns over the security of journalists in Nigeria. What is the situation in terms of the media openness and the security of journalists in Nigeria? Well, like you rightly said, we are worried about the security of Nigerians, but in particular journalists, because of the nature of work they are engaged in. Our major concern is as we approach 2015, which is an election year in Nigeria, we are likely to see more of such impunity against the media. One, fundamentally because politicians in here are rather very, very impatient with journalists, and they are very, very not comfortable with investigative journalism, especially as it relates to issues of corruption, electoral fraud, and other issues in Nigeria. So definitely we are going to see more of such things. Regrettably, we have engaged the security operatives over this, raised our fears, and requested specifically that the federal government should show more interest in the protection and safety of journalists in this country. Because like, as the conscience of the nation, the media cannot be subjected to such acts of impunity. And that was Shaibu Lehman, Secretary General of the Nigerian Union of Journalists on the line from Lagos talking to Komoto Mopulani. Exotic reptiles and amphibians rescued last week from the cargo holding facility at Johannesburg's Oartambo International Airport en route to the United States are being resuscitated and treated for a variety of diseases at the Johannesburg Zoo. A number of them are showing signs of improvement, but many more have died. Wandile Kalipa compiled this report. The world's biodiversity, more especially reptiles and amphibians, as well as other species in the flora and fauna fraternity, in a constant danger of getting extinct because of the greed and irresponsible actions undertaken by humans who treat them like non-beings. Recently, a crate packed with reptiles and amphibians 
was found at O.R. Tambo International Airport en route to the United States of America to be sold in pet shops. The crate was confiscated and taken to the Johannesburg Zoo where the animals are treated for a variety of diseases and many more have died. Dr. Brett Gardner, a vet at the Johannesburg Zoo, explains. Originally on arrival there were about 300 plus dead and we've now started stabilizing them fairly well. There have been a few that have died subsequently, but the animals are starting to look a little bit better than they did originally. The next bit is to find out where do we go from here, who's responsible for what's happened to these animals, because if this was anything else, people often think when they look at reptiles and amphibians as lesser beings, but if this was 1,685 birds or 1,685 dolphins or rhinos, this would be one of the biggest travesties ever that happened. But because it is something small like a reptile, nobody really thinks too much about it. But it would be very interesting to see who eventually is going to take the blame for what's happened to these animals because we're going to be, in the end, probably looking at about 500 dead by the time these animals leave quarantine. And then the decision is going to be difficult. Where do they go? So negotiations are soon to be underway with the Madagascar authorities to hopefully see if they can be sent back. Previous times, this has not been successful. So uh, we are making other plans in case that is not possible. The challenge to resuscitate the injured and frail amphibians and reptiles is a delicate and very complex exercise given their size and conditions of their physiognomical structures. Well, if you consider that some of these frogs are the size of your thumbnail, just over the size of your thumbnail, so that is a particularly difficult patient to work with because you can't get into a vein, you can't take blood to check kidney and so on function. So those little animals pose quite an interesting patient to work with. We have had success at treating some of them. Things like the chameleons are much easier to treat because uh, they're actually a fairly large size. but. It's one of my biggest interests, and we are fairly good at uh, reptile and amphibian medicine at the zoo. So um, I think we will have a fairly high survival rate, even though these animals were packaged in an atrocious way and left in the airport unattended for more than 48 hours. Treating the animals requires that an environment where they originate from be created and regulate the temperature accordingly. Well, the first thing with these type of animals is to get them out of the containers where they were incredibly stressed because you would have 15, 16 animals in a tiny little Tupperware container. And just by decreasing the amount of animals, you get a better air quality. We put them in enclosures that are closer to the natural humidity and temperatures that they're used to in Madagascar, feeding them, giving them water to drink. And then in those patients that required additional treatment, those ones, we'd given them fluid therapy, antibiotics to some of them, nutritional support. There's a few of them that are busy in the process of laying eggs. So those ones we've put on some calcium treatment to actually allow them normal egg laying. So there's quite a lot of things that we're doing and at the moment we're also looking for any of them that are heavily infested with parasites so that we can treat that as well. The death of most of the amphibians and reptiles was caused by infections and diseases including dehydration and cannibalism. Well, when you overcrowd animals like that and then you keep them in such horrible, unnatural conditions, you get a buildup of a lot of ammonia, especially with the frogs, which causes skin damage. 
A lot of animals are dehydrated, so then on top of the skin infections, they die from dehydration and kidney failure. We had a few cases of cannibalism where the animals just start eating their own. So if you imagine tiny, tiny little room with no ventilation almost, and you shove 40 people inside there, and then you let some of them start dying and let the rest of the living human beings sit on top of the bed, um, you're going to get sick. You can't have living animals lying in the decomposing bodies of the dead. That's a perfect environment for developing a disease. That was Dr. Brett Gardner, a vet at the Johannesburg Zoo. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Wandile Kalipa in Johannesburg. Here's Anne standing by with your economics news. Good afternoon. South African President Jacob Zuma says intra-Africa investment has grown to impressive levels of over 32% since 2007. He has been addressing delegates attending the Bloomberg Executive Africa Forum in Johannesburg. Zuma says the growth is almost four times faster than developed economies. Since 2007, there has been a compound growth of 57% in South Africa originated foreign direct investment projects into the rest of Africa. South Africa was the single largest foreign direct investor in the rest of Africa in 2012. With cumulative foreign direct investment jobs created standing at more than 45,000 to date. Libyan Prime Minister Ali Zedan has ordered the army to lift the blockade imposed by protesters on the main oil terminals in the east of the country. Since last July, security guards at key oil terminals in eastern Libya have blockaded exp- exports hitting government revenues. 
Libya's vital oil revenues fell far short of expectations last year, reaching just $40 billion after protesters shut down production at key sites. The crisis saw production plunge to about 250,000 barrels per day from nearly 1.5 million barrels per day before the crisis. After the blockade of an oil field in the south was lifted, output rose again to 600,000 barrels per day. Botswana's economy is expected to grow by 5.1% this year, lower than the 5.4% forecast last year. The Southern African country's finance minister says growth will be powered by growth in non-mining sectors such as trade and business services. Nigeria's Naira weakened against the U.S. dollar today as demand for dollars rose from units of two foreign banks covering oversold positions. The local currency weakened to 162.95 Naira to the dollar in the interbank from Friday's close of 162.55 Naira. Traders say the Naira weakened after two foreign banks brought dollars to cover short positions, triggering speculations that some offshore investors are still selling off their local debt holdings. The Naira fell to its weakest in four months last week after the U.S. Federal Reserve announced it would further reduce its bond-buying stimulus, which triggered sell-off bonds in Nigeria and other emerging markets by offshore investors. On to the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 11 rand 16 to the South African rand, 9 pula 4 cents to the Botswana pula, and if you're in Kenya, at 86 shilling 55 cents. It's also trading at 0.60 to the British pound and at 0.74 to the euro. On to the commodities, gold is trading at $1,250, platinum trading at $1,385 an ounce, and the spot price for Brent crude oil is at one. $106.99 a barrel. And that's the economic update. Here's Figalelewati with your sporting update. Now, sports update this hour, starting off with football news. Zimbabwe coach Ian Goroa believes that finishing fourth in the tournament will help elevate his team to believe that they can sit at the top of the table of African football and also aid the development of South African, African football to return back to its glory days. This after Zimbabwe was narrowly beaten 1-0 by Nigeria on Saturday in Cape Town. And Zimbabwe national team coach has given Simba Sitoli's move from how Mine FC to Ajax Cape Town, thumbs up following the completion of the African Nations Championship this past weekend. Sitole has signed a two-year deal with Ajax Cape Town. Gorowa, a former Ajax Cape Town assistant coach, believes that Sitole has made the right choice but seems to have reservations about Gudagwashe Mahachi's move to Mamelodi Sundowns. And in athletics, the South African 1,500-meter national record holder Johan Cronier had a promising start in the new 2014 track and field season in Germany at the weekend. The indoor meeting had two straight wins for Kenya and one for Ethiopia. 
Our correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. Johan Kronje challenged Nixon Chipseba Kiplimo of Kenya and Gibraltar Mekonen of Ethiopia to finish a remarkable third position in the men's 1500 meters. Kiplimo aged ahead in the last 150 meters to win the race ahead of Mekonen. But Kronje, a 1500 meters bronze medalist at the World Championships in Moscow last year, ran a season's best time of 3 minutes 37.49 seconds. Kronje's national record stands at 3 minutes 31.93 seconds, set at an international event in Italy last year. Meanwhile, at the same competition in Germany at the weekend, Kalebundiku overpowered fellow Kenyan Augustin Choge and Yeneo Alimereo of Ethiopia to win the tightly contested 3,000 meters. Genezebe Dibaba of Ethiopia was one of the outstanding athletes winning the women's 1,500 meters in a new world indoor record. Geshom Yati, Channel Africa Sports, London. In volleyball news, teams have started arriving in Kenya, where the African Volleyball Confederation qualifiers set to get underway on Thursday at the Moi Sports Center in Kasarani. This is the third and the final phase of the African qualification for the 2014 FIVB Volleyball World Championships, which are due to be held in Poland and Italy in September and October later this year. Fifteen teams will participate in the men's qualifiers and will be divided into three pools of five. The winner of each pool will secure a ticket to the finals in Poland, which will take place from the 3rd to the 8th of September. Kenya will host the second group, the Pool U. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi is in Nairobi, Kenya, and filed this report. African volleyball giants Egypt are already in Nairobi in readiness for the African Group U World Volleyball Qualifiers to be staged in Kenya beginning Thursday this week. Botswana, Cape Verde, and Zambia, the other teams involved in the group, are expected to land in Nairobi today and tomorrow ahead of the opening ceremony on Wednesday at the Mo International Sports Center, the venue of the event. The host Kenya men's national volleyball team too is almost full house after Mike Chemos who is based in Turkey arrived home on Saturday ahead of the two other professionals James Ontario and Philip Mayo expected to land from Europe bases today and tomorrow respectively. Coach Gideon Chenje dropped three players from the initial 17 to 14 last week before assessing the arriving professionals to pick the final squad of 12 in readiness for the African Group U World Cup qualifier that is set to kick off on Thursday at the Moy International Sports Center Arena in Nairobi. Finally, with golf news, South African golfer Richard Stoney says he's looking to become the first three-time winner of the Jobek Open when he returns to defend his title in the European and Sunshine Tour co-sanctioned tournament at Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club this week. A tournament tees off on Thursday on both the East and West golf courses, with the final two rounds played solely on the East. Stoney became the first South African winner of the Jobek Open in 2008 and then claimed the biggest victory margin in the history of the tournament when he won it again last year by seven strokes. After two weeks of playing in the Middle East, Stoney is obviously looking forward to his homecoming. That's the Sport News this hour. This is Africa Digest.
And that's it uh, for Africa Digest tonight. For myself, Kobediwana, my producer, Luanda Maume, technical producer, Evelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send your emails to info at channelafrica.org. Taking us now to top of the hour, here is Umkaya Lo by Bayete.